You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Thank you, Pastor David, worship team, Lee, Bert, everyone who's participated so far. And I trust that you are participating in our service. Core value of participatory worship means that we are all engaged in worshiping the Lord from start to finish in this service. And if this is your first time, especially to Grace, we welcome you and are so glad that you chose to worship with us today. I want to add one word to what Lee said about the lobby and the noise. If you thought it was noisy this morning when the first service got started, you ought to be here when the second service gets started. It's even more. So that in particular, this uh, project will help us uh, to move people to the outside. So thank you for considering that and praying about that. Well, I want to ask you, what do you think is the greatest threat to the church? Do you think it is government interference or COVID or apathy of church members and attenders or a lack of community service or an inability to live less for the church to live less than 10 years behind the culture? that lag that is always there, or a comfort level with the culture that far exceeds what should be tolerated. What do you suppose was the greatest threat to the early church? Was it the threat of persecution that included lunatic emperors? You think any of our politicians are a little, today? Boy, you should have... How would you have liked to have been with Nero, Caligula, some of those guys? Do you think that they were struggling and wrestling with the difficulties inherent with getting a new religion off the ground? Or the lack of a church building in which to meet and conduct church business? For churches of both eras, the answer is none of the above. The biggest threat to the 21st century American church is the same as it was for the first century Roman Empire church. False teachers. We are in week three of a seven-week study of the book of Titus. Last week, we learned about the role of elders in the church. And this week, we'll see why it is so important to have church leaders who both know Scripture and are willing to not only detect false teaching, but shut it down. This is their responsibility. It's reflected in the title of the message, Shut This False Teaching Down. Titus said. Our text for today's message is Titus 1, 10 through 16. For the sake of context, I'm going to begin reading in verse 9, which is the last verse about the requirements for elders that we, that we engaged last week when we considered church Leadership. By the way, I just want to say there. There's so many times I want to say things like this. I just and the text doesn't allow. Last week would have been the perfect time 
But even then, time was a factor. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, the same list of qualifications, essentially the same list of qualifications is given for elders. But in 1 Timothy 3, the apostle Paul said to Timothy, anyone who desires the office of an elder desires a good thing. One of the ways that you determine God's call on your life is to have this burning desire for ministry, an insatiable appetite to know the word, to know it well, and to communicate it with other people. And our staff, our elders, we've all been talking about, wouldn't it be great if the Lord just raised up more and more people from within our congregation, missionary team, mission team is, is, is thinking about this. We're all thinking about what if God has a number of people in our midst and he wants to serve full-time. Now, everybody can't serve full-time. In fact, very few will. But if you have this desire, talk to me. Talk to your home group leader. Talk to your small group leader or other, uh, other ministry leader, I mean. And, and let's start talking about it. So what is it that an elder is responsible to do in the church? Well, we're going to find out in Titus Chapter 1, verses 10 to 16. But again, we'll start with verse 9. It's our custom to stand as the word is read. It, read. So would you please, uh, well, read it too. I mean, when it's read it, you may as well stand for that as well, right? <laughs> verse 9. He, an elder, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach." One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. You may not hear that term too often now. People used to say, oh, he's a Cretan. So here's Paul. And this is kind of a tricky verse. We're going to have to deal with this when we get to it. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Hang in there. We're going to find out how Paul really feels. No, wait a minute. I think we know. They profess to know God, but they deny him. By their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you and be seated. Well, Titus is a perfect example of how the Apostle Paul handled common church matters with believers. He was one way with the, just the common church matters whether administrative or behavioral, he, he, he dealt differently with those who were guilty of teaching a false gospel. 
Paul was far gentler and more encouraging than you may think. We, the verses that we just read, you're like, whoa, Paul's pretty, he's sharp, he's strong. Well, not all the time. In fact, not most of the time. He identifies with the weaknesses of the people, but when it comes to false teaching, he adopted a different tone. Now, in our text, Paul was, what we need to ask, was Paul overreacting to aberrant teaching that was slightly off? Was it and is it really that big of a deal to sound the alarm about? About good works, for goodness sakes. I mean, good works are the mark, one of the marks of, of Christians. The false teaching that troubled Paul the most was coming from within the local church. And whenever false teaching concerns the gospel, as it often does, there are more gospel issues than you probably think about in, in Scripture. When it concerns the gospel, yes, it really was and it really is that big of a deal. Today, with instant access to any sort of teacher that one can imagine, the exposure to false teaching is unavoidable. How then shall we discern error from truth? The best way is to test all teaching with what you have learned from the elders in your local church. Does that sound arrogant? It probably does. But it's not. Indeed, this guideline is general in nature. It applies to believers and churches everywhere, which is why it is so dangerous <clears throat> to just take your Bible and leave the church and say, you know, I've been hurt. I think I'm just going to do this on my own because God loves the individual. Yes, he does. But he saved us to be in a family. We don't do Anything well on our own with regard to the Christian life. We cannot learn theology in a vacuum. We must do that in concert, in community with other believers. <laughs> the trick is to install elders who know how to, to distinguish between truth and error. And they must not, the elders must not allow error to mix with truth. So the ability to discern truth is as important as the ability to communicate it. Elders in verse 9 are to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. Verse 10 gives us understanding of the issue on the island of Crete. There were Jewish legalists who wanted to add works to the gospel. Now look, historically we know there was a large Jewish community on the island of Crete. And some of them had heard and believed at some level the gospel that Jesus died for us. But the circumcision party, referenced in verse 10, was typically <clears throat> made up of Jews who had verbally committed to Christ, but had decided that salvation was not found exclusively in Jesus. After all, we're connected with the Old Testament law, with Moses, and pe people have always come to know God through the synagogue. So it's not Jesus alone. Those of, of the circumcision party believe that Jesus paid for our sins. Yes, he did that. 
But in addition to believing that Jesus died for us, one must also do good works to ensure salvation. Now look, I know that's going through all of our minds at times. <clears throat> wow, I'm just not living like I ought to live, and so I better up my game just to make sure I'm going to heaven. The circumcision party rejected the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Instead, they believed that Jesus plus works equals salvation. Now, one who holds this belief might say, Jesus made the down payment, but we've got to keep up the monthly installments. I heard about a man who bought his daughter a sewing machine. This was way back in the days. In fact, it was my, my first wife's who is with the Lord now, but it, it was her husband, I mean, her, her father, who bought her a sewing machine, and then he gave the payment book to, it, to her husband. And Marvin Fell was stuck with those payments. And, and that's the way people think of salvation. Jesus made the down payment, but if I don't keep up these monthly payments, uh, then my redemption is not secure. But the New Testament teaches Jesus Plus, nothing equals salvation. Jesus plus anything else equals condemnation. Since we are all legalists at heart who want to earn the right to stand before God, this message is easily perverted by those who cannot bring themselves to depend totally on God's grace for salvation. The Apostle Paul did not label these false teachers as misguided believers with whom we need to exercise patience so that they might gently be brought back into the fold. But rather, he identified them as insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. Elders are to rebuke such people as well as expose the error of their teaching. In verse 11, he says that <clears throat> false teachers must... Be silenced. That's awkward doing that. Why so harsh with these false teachers? Why? Because so very much is at stake. So many people worried about being on the right side of history worry folks about being on the right side of eternity. There's way too much at stake. To let this go without intervention. These false teachers were upsetting entire families, which probably meant that they were throwing home groups into chaos. Now, we get an idea in Romans 16 that first century churches met in homes with centralized leadership overseeing several house churches. I, I tend to agree with Carl Truman that 21st century churches in the West may be heading to a time when 2nd century Roman Empire churches are a good model for us. In other words, I fear we're going nowhere good. And, if, and when I say this fairly frequently, and you think, man, are you, come on, we're really not in that much. Surely the church is going to be able to continue to be what it's always been. Almost every Christian leader I know says the same thing. I don't hear anybody saying, 
Ah, it's just overblown. So we may find ourselves in the same place. And that's another reason we want that serious savings account. So that when the day comes, we will be able to continue being a stronghold for the gospel. And and the gospel will continue going out. In Paul's day, groups were not able to gather on Sundays to hear the word preached as we're able to do. So home groups were fertile ground for false teachers to lead people in the wrong doctrinal direction. Since New Testament Christianity is is a, a, a fulfillment and completion of Old Testament promises, Jewish Christians who desired to mingle Jesus' death with Mosaic law We're able to confuse believers in small groups and move them away from the pure gospel. Does it make sense? I mean, these people already were grounded in the Old Testament scriptures. And the New Testament scriptures hadn't been fully written this time. They were going on the apostles' teaching. So it was very easy for them to say, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, Jesus, absolutely. But Moses as well. I'll tell you what you've already discerned. Paul did not like gospel confusion one little bit. And even from a distance, he told Titus to encourage the elders to shut down this false teaching and these false teachers. Now, verse 12 brings us to one of those interesting places. Let's read it. One of the Cretans, a prophet... Of their own, I may have jumped on you, Dale, on the uh, slides. Go to verse 12, or I might not have that right. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Yikes. Kind of a difficult uh, word, isn't it? I mean, was Paul a racist? Was he at the very least insensitive? Such a statement would surely have have him would, would have had him removed from almost every social media platform in our day and in his day if they had existed. The prophet of whom Paul spoke with a six, was a sixth century BC Cretan philosopher named Epimenides, but you already knew that. I'm, I'm sure you did. He had predicted a Persian attack 10 years before it happened. So he was known as a prophet as well as a philosopher. Along with Aristotle and Plato, Epimenides was known as one of the seven wise men of Greece. So he was a big deal. And the Cretans' practice of lying and cheating was such a big deal that a new word was introduced into the Greek language to identify such practices. Kretizo. Why do I say Greek words with an Italian accent? Kretitsa. That's a little background, but even so, Paul, come on. Did you really need to say that? Well, perhaps we should ask, come on, God, did you really? But we wouldn't ask that, would we? I thought about this. You weren't ready for it, but I thought about it when I said the word of God, the people of God, and you said, thanks be to God. First, let's think about what's up. First, we must remember that the integrity of the gospel 
was at stake. Paul was not cloaking ethnic slurs in religious language and arguments. He saw the world divided into two groups. Not Jews and Gentiles. Not capitalists and socialists. Not those who get far side jokes and those who don't. Paul saw the world as believers and unbelievers. He didn't see vaccinated and unvaccinated. He didn't see woke and Neanderthal. Paul was compassionate with believers and gentle with, he was compassionate with unbelievers and he was gentle with believers who were struggling with sin. And he said, Restore those people gently, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted in this way. Where Paul lost patience and fast was with those who proclaim a false gospel, which the Jews on the island of Crete were doing. Paul simply pointed out that they were living up to their name. They were deceivers, and they were even dividing true believers. So I I would ask if you consider yourself a conspiracy theorist, but I'd be better to ask those close to you whether you are a conspiracy theorist, right? You might say, no, 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 I'm just telling the truth here. (laughs) Even if there are no human forces that are moving chess pieces on a board, you can guarantee that there is a major conspiracy that is always brewing, and it has to do with the gospel. It has to do with Jesus, King Jesus. You recall Psalm 2 where David wrote about those who conspired against the Lord's anointed? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves together and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Is one who assumes that Satan wants to divide true believers a conspiracy theorist? The apostles in Acts 4 appear to have been happily so when the Jewish leaders tried to shut down their preaching of the gospel. They they pointed back to Acts 2 and said, Lord, we've seen it happening right before our very eyes. The Jews and the, the, the Romans, they all conspired together to kill The anointed one. Is it possible, do you think, that the widening divisions in our land are, more than anything else, satanic attacks on the true gospel? Don't be calling people on the other side Satan, but do know that Satan is behind a lot of what's going on. I don't mean to imply that the United States has ever been the protector and propagator of the true gospel. The gospel was given to the church and the church must be the guardian and ambassador, be the guardian, the the gospel's guardian and ambassador, which means, of course, that we are ambassadors for Christ. If Satan can distract us by causing us to think about vaccines and critical race theory and Senate majorities, he has a good shot And I just realized last night when I was reading this over for the last time before bed what I had done there. He has a good shot 
at deceiving many into believing a false gospel, which usually wears clothing that is accessorizing the plain truth, adding this and that as essentials to the gospel. Paul saw two groups, saved and lost. He didn't see Jews and Gentiles and Asians and Europeans. He saw saved and lost. He pointed to God's beautiful plan of diversity within a unified church. Just consider the beauty found in Galatians chapter 3, beginning with verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. Covenant people of God. The point is, of course, we are one in Christ. So once the gospel was preached and believed and churches were established, did Christian women in the first century immediately enjoy the same privileges as Christian men? No. Were Christian slaves granted freedom by their Christian owners? No, not immediately. In fact, Paul will address some of these relationships in Titus 2, next week's text. In fact, by becoming one in Christ, we do not lose our distinctiveness, the distinct beauty that God has built into each of us, nor are we encouraged, as we will see, to pursue redress for grievances at all costs and at the expense of unity in the church. And that's a hard sell in our day, but it is God's word And it's God's way. I'm not sure if you've noticed it. You might not notice it in this first service as much as you would in the second service. But it seems to me, and you may have seen it last week, we have a better shot here at Grace Community Church of becoming more diverse than we have been or than we have had in a long time. And if we are to reflect God's divine divine design in diversity... We are going to have to be intentional about welcoming all those that God brings our way. So on the authority of Scripture, I want to say to those of you who have been part of this homogeneous group for a long time, and I want to say to those of you who are visiting and wondering whether or not you will be loved and welcomed here, don't let this be about politics. Keep politics out of it. God is putting us together to be a testimony for Jesus Christ. Not to give us community cred. This is about creed, not cred. We cannot take our cues from the world to know how to treat one another. We are brothers and sisters In Christ, let us live as if this is indeed who we are. If you see someone standing alone or looking lost, go meet them and welcome them to grace.
in Titus, Paul addressed local churches with local problems that were allowing a false gospel to flourish. His words were direct. No wonder Paul said to Titus, tell the elders to rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith. Even with false teachers, the goal was restoration. But if it didn't happen quickly, the command was to get them out, as we will see later in Titus. So when you read verses 13 to 16, remember that Paul was commanding the rebuke of false teachers who just happened to be Cretans living down to their reputation. I imagine that most of you are like me and you just, you just hope it'll go away. You don't want to deal with it. You know, you're just like, you know, let's just give it a little time here. What so many of us miss is that often a rebuke offered in love will have far greater impact in the right direction than we could expect. I'm not a very direct person. My wife, Allison, is a lot more direct than I am. And we were meeting with a good friend of ours who is a pretty, you know, heavy-handed friend. He's with the Lord now, but, but I... Allison one time, and we were still dating, and she said, well, hey, you can't talk like that. And I'm like, wonder what's going to happen here, you know. And he's like, well, you're right, you know. And I'm like, I learned a lesson that day. Oftentimes, a direct rebuke will be well received. Protecting the integrity and purity of the gospel is not as easy as you might assume it is, assume it is, even in a church like Grace. There are challenges that come with it. The closer error is to truth, the more dangerous it is. This was close. Once you're saved, should you do good works? Oh, yeah, God has ordained that we do good works. So then is good works part of your salvation? Well, it's part of your life, but it's not what's making you right with God, never will be, never can be. So, the closer error is to truth, the more dangerous it is. That is why it's vital for the elders to continually distinguish between a theology of glory and a theology of the cross. A theology of glory implies that I must be good enough to be allowed into heaven. And if I do good works and my efforts are recognized, if I have more money than most, or if I'm more spiritual than others, then surely God has very openly accepted my efforts. Look, the prosperity gospel was going on well before the 21st century. It was one of the big heresies right off the bat. But it's a theology of glory. A theology of the cross, conversely, states unequivocally that I can never be good enough to earn God's favor unless God descends to me that I have no hope of eternal life. Now, now don't think about this just strictly with regard to your relationship with God at salvation. We live our lives 
as theologians of, the glo- of glory or theologians of the cross, as Martin Luther was the one who termed, uh, coined these terms. And he was talking about theologian, but theology is just a little bit easier for us to get our heads around. We live our lives in one of these ways every day. I have only to put my trust that God the Father in his great love for us sent his son Jesus to keep every point of the law and to die as the spotless lamb of God, a sacrifice and substitute for our sins. I have only to do that to be saved and nothing more. When we come to Jesus at the cross and we confess that we are sinners in the way that scripture describes us and that we, when we throw ourselves on his mercy through faith in Jesus and faith in Jesus' death for us, then we are made righteous, justified by faith alone. Praise God. Now, verse 15 may seem strange to you, but Paul was referencing some of the details of the Cretan heresy, which no doubt involved Jewish law and, uh, and Jewish law practices focusing on dietary and ceremonial restrictions that pointed, when you think about it, to the accomplishments of the flesh far more than they did to Jesus' accomplishment on the cross. You may remember the teaching, or you may not, in Mark 7 and Matthew 15, then also in Acts 10 and 11, that Jesus, when Jesus died and rose from the grave, he declared all foods clean. No longer were there restrictions on pork chops, for instance. Therefore, Paul in Titus 1.15 said, to those who are pure, who have been washed clean by the blood of Christ All things are pure. All foods are okay. You don't have to worry about all the exact washing of the hands instructions that the Pharisees had added to to the scripture and to the word. All things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and consciences are defiled. In other words, not only do believers not need to worry about dietary restrictions that were abolished with Jesus' death and resurrection. But for those who wish to add works to the gospel, well, they're unbelievers. And no matter how strict their diet is, no matter how careful they are to do the right thing, they are unbelievers and thus defiled. Paul ends this section of his letter to Titus in verse 16 with an an utter repudiation of false teachers who promote good works as the way of salvation. These were hypocrites, Paul said, using Jesus' name and pretending to be better than us. As C.S. Lewis said, of all bad men, religious bad men are are the worst. There are two ways the hypocrite of verse 16 reveals his stripes. First, he presents one image in public, but is an entirely different person in private. We're familiar with these hypocrites. He is the picture of gentility when others are around, but angry and abusive at home. 
She, was, she is outwardly thoughtful and caring, but privately critical and vengeful. There's some hypocrisy in all of us. Absolutely. But believers will be moved by the Spirit to yield even the most difficult areas of their lives to the Lord. And they'll constantly be repenting when they have sinned. So in other words, we will repent often if we're true believers. The true believer is one who recognizes that any goodness that she possesses comes from the Lord. She's dependent on God's grace, not only for the redemption that comes through Jesus by faith, but for the freedom that believers enjoy in Jesus. Liberty in Christ is designed to make us free to serve the Lord with hearts of gratitude and a commitment to glorify Him, not to live careless and carefree lives that go, that, that, that go around saying, liberty in Christ, freedom in Christ. My mother, I, I can remember it, you know, when she turned 60 and they, they gave the senior citizen discounts to that. She used to love to say, senior citizen discount. Some people just love to live like hell and go around saying, freedom in Christ. We're not called to that. We're called to reflect Jesus' holiness, righteousness, and love for other people. But we must get the order right. We are saved and then we do good works because the Spirit is working through us. Not we do good works so that we will be saved. So you can see how easy it is for Satan to confuse our thinking as related to our relationship with God. Good works will never be enough to bring us into relationship with God, and yet good works are the mark of a true believer. Therefore, elders must protect the truth of the gospel above all else. Chad Bird teaches that the two favorite lies of Satan are, with enough effort, I can keep the law. And with enough sin, I can undo the gospel. Both of these lies, Bird says, drown out God's promises to us. Let me say it again. We are all legalists at heart. Satan will do everything he can to make us think that we can earn God's favor by keeping the law and by standing up for what we think is right and by proving to others and ourselves that we are good enough. But only the righteousness of Christ will do, don't you know? The second of Bird's false um, statements could lead some to think that he cares nothing for good works. And, and, and that is not so. It's a huge mistake to think works will save you, although good works follow redemption. It is equally wrong to think that the struggle that you have with sin will undo the life in Christ that the Holy Spirit has breathed into you. Take your stand on Christ and on him alone. The problem is not too much gospel. The problem is too little gospel. The more we enter into those deep, rich waters that I'm not good enough, but Jesus is and it's his life. His righteousness was traded for my sin 
And when God looks at me, he sees Jesus. When he looks at you, he sees Jesus and he's pleased. These truths are too important to allow them to be distorted by false teachers. Pray that the elders will stay committed to the truth of the pure gospel. Do not let anything move you from your identity in Christ. The day is coming sooner than we think, I fear, that we will no longer see others as political or social opponents. But rather, if we have entered deeply enough into the waters of the gospel, we'll see them as we should be seeing them right now. Those who need Christ and those many of whom for whom Christ died, gave his life and gives his life to those freely who come to him for salvation. And we will see them as those who need Jesus and those that we must forgive who persecute us, those for whom we must pray blessings when they persecute us. Why are we not there now? Because somehow we're, we have accepted our place under the category theology of glory. If we're having trouble with all of this, <clears throat> because of our desire to do everything within our power, to protect freedom in the land. And oh, I want freedom to, to, to keep going for a long, long time. Not outliving me and my grandchildren, but well for many more centuries. But if our love for freedom has messed up our understanding of the, go the gospel, God may graciously allow us to see what first century believers learn. Only in Christ... Are we free? Give your heart fully to King Jesus. And when you do, you will follow him to the cross. Trust him, not only for redemption, but for spiritual growth and for power to live a life that points others to Jesus, that is constantly pointing to Jesus and showing others the way. As you die to yourself, you will live a resurrected life with him. And a resurrected life with Jesus is worth living. Let's pray. Well, Father, I... I say these words, I, I, I sense that the Holy Spirit has led me to say these words. Do I fully understand them? Do I fully understand the implications of them? No, not, not with the gospel, not with the way that we must live in, a, in an increasingly divided, vitriolic world. I don't understand all of the implications, but I do know my Savior loves me. I do know that when you look at me, you see Jesus and you smile. I do know that Jesus alone is all we need. I do know that you've left your Holy Spirit 
to constantly bring us back to the truth. And I do know also that you have left instructions for us for how we should live in these days that, again, seem to be growing increasingly dark, but perhaps even we have been deceived in the past thinking that the light we saw was genuine and true light when it was really artificial light. Lord, just turn our hearts, our minds to the gospel. And for those who are facing big decisions uh, this week, these next few weeks, because of their understanding of the way that they should live their lives and should lead their families, and in no way uh, do, do these, uh, these ways contradict the gospel, but we're all making decisions that are difficult for us. So for, for those people, Lord, we pray that you will be near and that we as a church will be near for difficult decisions that need to be made. And we pray that you would, above all else that's going on in this world, bind us together in Christ. Remind us who we are. We're not male and female, Jew or Greek, slave or free. Not even barbarian or Scythian, Colossians 3 says. Wild men and wilder men. We are one in Christ. And it's him that we worship and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for the benediction? Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.